Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how news organizations are navigating the many major ongoing stories that currently dominate our news landscape, including COVID-19, the Black Lives Matter movement, the federal government, the election, and many others. My guest is Dr. Anita Varma, Assistant Director of Journalism and Media Ethics at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Dr. Varma specializes in humanization and news, as well as applying ethics in the practice of journalism and media industries. We explore how sourcing, framing, sources, and bias influence media coverage, and how journalists might address these challenges. This is part one of my interview with Dr. Varma, and part two will air next week. Welcome, Dr. Varma. We have a lot of major ongoing stories right now. I mean, we certainly have the election. We certainly have the administration and how it's dealing with various issues. We have the pandemic in general. We have the Black Lives Matter movement. We've got a lot of ongoing major massive stories. And so I guess I want to kind of start by getting your take or your initial thoughts about how to cover stories like this ethically. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think every day we're just seeing more and more issues get added to that list um, for better and worse better in the sense that we see more and more issues that have been going on for a really long time. They're finally getting some some attention. Um, and for worse, obviously, that these issues persist. Um, so the main recommendation that I give to journalists and journalism students is to think about the people at all times. So who are the people who are not only making the decisions, um, so those might be isolated to a handful of people in government or in corporations that are final decision makers, but who are the people that are affected? Who are the people speaking up against uh, how things have been done for the most part in the past? And what are their stories? And I think that's where we start to get a more complete picture of any of these issues, right? Because people in decision-making capacities, uh, they will offer some insight, but it's always, it's always uh, limited to their vantage point. And so expanding out to talk to the people most affected um, would be the way that I would suggest covering all of those issues and new ones that might come up. A challenge that journalists have faced, especially journalists from mainstream society. So I I always joke, I mean, I not joke, I am Italian, but I know I'm white in the U.S. But as someone who maybe comes from the mainstream uh, group, the dominant group, if I'm going to go and talk to the community, I want to do that. Uh, and yet there have been charges of, hey, you're not really talking with us, you're exploiting us, you are walking in with preconceived notions, and we're not really seeing ourselves reflected in your coverage. So for journalists who are genuinely trying to make an effort to engage with the community, but have no idea either how to navigate that or how to how to cover the humanity of a community that they don't understand, what might you say to that? It's absolutely a, a tough spot that many journalists find themselves in. And I think the best approach, and it's not necessarily a a silver bullet or anything like that. But the best approach can be to put that on the table, right? To recognize that at the outset, even when requesting time um, for a conversation or a pre-interview to say, you know, I recognize that this story is not being covered in a clear or comprehensive way, that it's really being skewed to people saying negative things about you and your community. I want to tell all sides of this story. I want to make it clear what's really going on here. So can we talk? 
And positioning things that way, I think, acknowledges what is going on that would make people reticent and also signals that, you know, there's due diligence here, even if, unfortunately, that's not always, you know, what journalists are bringing when they come into communities. Um, I also think that making space in the interview, not only for interview questions, but also for a chance for sources to say, you know, here's other stuff going on that I never see get covered. And why is that? Um, and those can be some really fantastic ideas too, um, but opening the process up a little bit more and certainly being really mindful not to walk in with a desire for one kind of soundbite or one quick you know, quote from someone and then you hang up the phone because I think that can create a lot of understandable uh, distrust and reluctance to engage again. Oh, I think that is great advice. I usually, when I was practicing journalism, I would always end with, you know, is there anything you want to add that I didn't ask you that you think it's important for people to know? But I never went so far as to say, and what am I missing in your community? Or what do you think needs to be covered? That is such a valuable thing, especially for communities who may not uh, be connecting with my, my Twitter feed, say, or uh, may not be connecting in, in the ways that we would expect to be hearing from our audiences. So I really love that. Can you think of any examples that either you've, you've seen or read or heard or uh, people you've engaged with who've been doing that well? Andre Nata, um, he's the project editor of Broke in Philly. Um, so those three different words. And he, I think, has done some really great work with helping the news partners and other folks involved in the initiative and with Resolve Philly, um, being able to, as he calls it, be in the community before there's a story or, you know, not just reacting, but being proactive about being there. Um, and one thing that he has talked about, which I think is really fantastic, is acknowledging that it can be awkward, right? You're coming into a community that you're not part of. It's not your regular, you know, walk down the street or commute. Um, but at the same time, the fact that you keep coming back can really have added value um, in terms of how people in the community view you and also what they're willing to talk about. Um, the other folks that always come to mind when I get this question are folks who write for Mission Local. Um, so I'm a huge fan of theirs, and I think they do really phenomenal work. The mission has changed so much just even in the last eight to ten years, um, but really trying to, to stay mission-focused for them um, and understanding that those communities are all overlapping. At some points, they might be colliding in a very relatively small space of the mission neighborhood. Um, so I think that I... My understanding of their practices is that they're, you know, located and living in the mission, but as you probably know, there's all different aspects of the mission now, and they really do their best to represent all of them. Um, so those would be the two that come to mind. And I think in both cases, it's really a matter of being there before you have to be, because the day that you feel like you have to be or your editor sends you there kind of cold um, is the day where it can be really hard to, to get access um, in a meaningful way. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. And you're right, Mission Local, its voice is so, there's such clarity to it. You really know who they're talking to. They're really speaking to their audience. They're really thinking about their audience at every turn in their news gathering and writing process. You can really feel it. You talk about being in the community before you're in the community. And one way that journalists or newsrooms used to do that was beats. If I had a beat, then I was getting to know my sources. I was getting to know the people involved in that beat 
before the story. I was developing the relationships and and that way when a story broke, they would be willing to talk to me or, uh, you know, maybe they'd be willing to let me know something off the record or on the QT that they wouldn't call anybody else because we had a relationship. And we've moved away, not always, but a lot of local newsrooms, I've moved away from the beat system and made everybody a general assignment reporter. And I, that's something that for me personally, it saddens me because I think we've lost a little bit of access, at least to the official sources. You know, we can always call them and get that generic, hey, on the spot interview, but we've lost access. And then when it comes to, say, um, you know, the education beat or, uh, you know, even the crime beat, if I'm on that beat, I am in communities or if I'm on the education beat, I am at the school. So I am getting to know the non-official sources as well. And so I think Mission Local, while it doesn't have beats, it's taken this model of community journalism and trying to make it work with or without beats. But I'm wondering if you want to comment on sort of the movement away from the beat system at the local level. The beat system uh, and the history of the beat system in the U.S. Uh, is interesting at all levels. So in the 70s, actually, um, a scholar who you may be familiar with, Gay Tuckman, she wrote pretty extensively about the beat system and this concept of the news net. And her argument was that you have if you imagine a net that's kind of like a, a fishing net, if you've seen those, I'm not really a fisherman, fisherwoman, whatever, but um, that there are certain nodes that, that get attached. And so those would be the beats that any newsroom can cover. But what falls through the news net are the beats that are not assigned. And on top of that, when beats rely very heavily on official sources, even if you have an education beat, but you're only ever quoting the Board of Education, then there's still maybe news falling through the holes in the net that would be from the perspective of students, from the perspective of parents. Um, so I think that the beat system has always had uh, some challenges to it in the US, but certainly agree with you that the move away from beats where everyone is suddenly a general assignment reporter um, makes reporters jobs even harder. I mean, just today, there's been so many different types of stories that any given journalist might be tasked with for covering, especially for smaller outlets, um, let's say just in the Bay Area or just in Chicago. And that puts journalists in a really tough spot. In addition, because most journalism education and training is not based on subject matter expertise. So they're trained to do the, the methods of reporting, but not necessarily to be in deep about, well, how do I assess this proposal from ICE? Or how do I assess this competing claim from immigrant advocacy groups? And that, I think, puts journalists at a severe disadvantage, whether it's their beat or not their beat. Um, but the benefit of the beat was that they could get to know it. The other problem, though, with the beat is that if they were only getting to know the perspective of the Board of Education, then that still might reinforce, right, some people who are very involved in schools not really being represented. Um, so that's where I think that journalists, we all need to start from recognizing that they have a really, really tough job. Um, but also to think about, you know, what would it look like if you were to say, okay, at this news outlet, we cover these 10 different areas, you might be asked to cover all of them. Now, as part of your training, go read these books and articles that are really not in agreement with each other, hopefully, but are really mainstays to understand the space. And that's what I see a lot coming out of the defund police movement is a plea from activists who have been working in that space for a long time to please read up on it before trying to cover it just based on what's happened today. 
Right. That's a great example. I have a couple of questions about what you wanted to say, but to, to, to respond to what you just here ended with, the defund the police movement, because that's a very nuanced and interesting and thoughtful argument, right? And yet, if all you know is the phrase defund the police, then it's this visceral reaction, especially if you're on the conservative side or you believe in public safety. And it's not that progressives or people who want to explore defund the police don't believe in public safety. Um, and that, and therein lies the issue. This this phrase is is you know powerful enough to catch our attention, but also allows us to um, make assumptions without going further. And I love what you're saying about and, and what adv- activists are saying is, hey, become a subject matter expert in this. Let's cover this well. Let's cover the nuances of it. Let's really do this right, rather than just allowing this catchphrase to drive our drive a wedge into the issue as we've seen so many times before. I would definitely agree with that. The biggest eye-opening element for me in looking at some of those materials was when we think about other public uh, things that are often regarded as you know public entities that have also been defunded over the years. So education is one example where fewer and fewer dollars go to public schools that really need them. You know. All of us probably know public school teachers that take money out of their own wallets, which they don't actually have that much, but to buy art supplies, to buy paper and pens. Um, And yet with that kind of transition, the conversation was never as far as, you know, the most recent round, which started with the Bush administration, conversation around that was never a question of, well, what do we really think education is serving? It was more of a tactical decision. But just because that wasn't framed in the same way doesn't mean that the outcome was any different, right? It means moving dollars from one place and putting it elsewhere when that's deemed the priority. Um, The other example that I saw today, which was intentionally some hyperbole, I think, but it was an activist who was saying that if if your kitchen is on fire, you don't call an arsonist to set fire to the rest of the house. And, you know, it's such a devastating analogy, but I think the the fear that is across many Black families and Black communities of having the police interact whatsoever, um, it really has to stop and make you reevaluate what we think we mean when we start to conflate public safety and policing, um, if that's how terrified people are, right? If people were that scared of doctors, then we might have to think again, and maybe in some cases should think again about how the medical establishment is positioned as well. Yeah. And in some cases, people of color aren't comfortable going to doctors, especially in the Black community, where there are historical examples of being mistreated in the medical field. So I love that example. And maybe it's not as urgent at this moment in time as the police slash public safety conversation that we're having. But it's, 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 again, it goes to that larger systemic issue, which again, we can talk about. um, But when we're, when we're covering it in the news as a story, if we aren't, educated on it, or if we don't know the nuances, then we do struggle to communicate that to our audiences. And so I, I, I think these conversations about what should the structure of a newsroom look like and what are the inherent pitfalls that we need to be aware of so that we don't fall into them. So beats, you brought up that earlier. The inherent pitfall of a beat is it's so easy to rely on official sources. And if I if I go that route, because I know they're there, it's a very easy black and white, you're the official, you've got the title. 
how do I develop relationships with non-official sources? That seems so nebulous, or it might to a journalist seem so nebulous. How do I find someone credible in this vast community? Um, you know, how do I how do I do that? And when we're talking about whether we're talking about beats, whether we're talking about nuanced subject matter experts, uh, the idea of, you know, thinking about how to structure this. I also just want to say one more thing. It's funny that we're talking about this now, at least to me personally. I remember I was a journalist. I got my master's. I went back into journalism. And I thought to myself, gosh, I really regret not, I mean, I majored in English, which I loved. But I'm like, I really regret not majoring in like public policy or international relations. Because I'm like, then I would have been a subject matter expert journalist. And I remember thinking that at a very young age, how well that might have served me. And now we're actually talking about the whole the whole industry maybe rethinking that or taking it more seriously. Which is really interesting because some of the nonprofit news outlets have, you know, positioned themselves as really being the experts on knowing about education, knowing about environmental issues, criminal justice, um, which is a really great shift away from just saying we're general and if it bleeds, it leads. Um, the other question, though, is, you know, how much support are they getting and are they getting sufficient support to continue doing that kind of in-depth coverage? You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Dr. Anita Varma, Assistant Director of Journalism and Media Ethics at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. I hear from local journalists that are trying to get in touch with the mayor's office, trying to get in touch with the supervisor's office, and I wouldn't assign any you know, malicious intent, but there are times when they can't be reached for comment, and that means that you right, you keep digging. And in the same regard, you know, let the same logic hold for community sources, um, the first few people you try may not respond, may not pick up a phone call or an email, um, but that then you keep trying. And, you know, I've read that journalists often find that they do triple the amount of research compared to what ends up in a lot of stories, which is definitely part of part of the game. Um, but the, the real downside to not doing that, I think, is becoming clear where so many years of this over-reliance on officials um, was always based on the notion that officials will have the most reliable version of what's really going on. And of course, that overlooks the fact that all officials have interests. And in the best cases, those officials are acting in the public's interest. Um, but in the worst cases, and we're seeing some examples of that, officials are acting in their own interest. And that can be everything from falsifying data about coronavirus cases to falsifying threats posed by unarmed victims of shootings. Um, and the list unfortunately goes on. So that's where I think that, you know, journalists are definitely at a moment where they need to take a hard look at what they've been told is the best way to go about things and to consider, you know, whose interests are we serving when we continue those practices and whose interests do we want to serve as community journalists? Yeah, exactly. You know, you bring up the idea of interest and, and everybody, all of us as humans spin. We all, we all want to look good. We all want to make sure. So we're, we're all going to spin our own stories. And, and if you're in an official capacity, it's part of your job and you're talking to the media. Part of your job is to spin whether you're the chief of police, whether you are the head of a nonprofit organization, whether you are the governor of California, um, you're going to do a little bit of spin. And, and to use Governor Newsom as an example, he's been doing a fantastic job communicating about COVID-19. Um, and we can say that and appreciate it and still seek to hold him accountable. We have to 
always hold officials accountable and talk to people who are affected by the policies he seeks to uh, implement and and get feedback there. And to that and you wrote an article recently about context, about um, giving context. And of course, I'm all about context here at my at my podcast. The idea of slow journalism, explanatory journalism. And of course, you referenced the Marshall Project doing criminal justice reporting. You uh, you referenced you know uh, places like Reveal or ProPublica, which are doing uh, amazing investigative journalism. Mission Locals doing great explanatory journalism, and. These, this is often coming out of publicly funded spaces. Uh, corporate outlets have very limited resources. You might get an explanatory piece like once a month, right? But for these public journalism outlets, I don't know, how much thinking have you given to how to support slow journalism, explanatory journalism? The political economy questions that journalism faces right now, particularly local journalism, um, it's going from bad to worse to really, really bad to horrible, right? If you can think of those as a downward spiral. Um, one of the reasons is that philanthropic giving is down despite coronavirus efforts, um, you know, efforts to find a vaccine, efforts to, to help with immediate um, food insecurity, Donations to those kinds of nonprofits are up, but donations across the board to other sectors is way down. And that's always kind of expected behavior when you have a period of economic decline, recession, whatever we're calling this. Um, but it, it creates a lot of difficulty for news organizations that are already running pretty small. So um, Jesse Holcomb did a great report a couple years ago, and I believe he updated it this year with the Institute for Nonprofit News about how many nonprofit news outlets are, you know, running quite a lot of in-depth coverage, slow journalism, explanatory journalism with a staff of less than 10 people. And that's really hard to do even under the best of economic circumstances where you can kind of bank on, pardon the pun, um, a robust stream of donations. But now that we're not in those scenarios, the question that news outlets often come to is, especially nonprofit news outlets, you know, who do we turn to? And one answer has been uh, rich folks. And the other answer has been foundations that these rich folks might be running. Um, and that that is one way about it, um, but it's also unlikely to be able to sustain the entire local news ecosystem, which is why we're seeing this rise in local news deserts. Um, and I definitely appreciate all the work that Knight and others have been doing to try to address local news deserts, but it's very clear that they can't do it alone. And that's where uh, there's an author, Victor Picard, he's tenured professor at Annenberg School of Communication in, uh, in Penn, UPenn, uh, Philly, and he's written extensively about how and why news and journalism need to be removed from market forces. And let's place them into a space, you know, analogous to how we think about public schools, about public libraries, about the military. It's not that we all have to wake up up in the morning and donate some money to the military. It's that that money is taken regardless of whether you would like it to be in those amounts for all of those things. And there's good reason for it, you know, to say that public education is not an optional thing that we can either choose to donate to if we feel goodwill towards it or not. You know, whether you have a kid or not, you're living in a district, there's going to be um, taxes allocated to public schools because you know, this country has claimed to have a commitment to education. And his 
argument, which I think is really compelling in his recent work, is all about why that needs to be the case for journalism as well, that journalism won't be able to survive. We've already seen that the collapse of advertising for journalism takes down advertising models. Subscriptions are not a viable option as an alternative because not enough people are willing to pay for subscriptions. Similar issues with paywalls. I really admire news outlets that drop their paywalls for you know very intense issues, um, and yet it also reinforces this problem of people not being willing to pay for it if they can expect it and then receive it for free. Um, so then what is the solution other than getting a time machine and requiring everybody to pay for it the way we pay for Netflix? Uh, instead of that, his argument is that we need to say, okay, this many public dollars are going to go into a trust that the government would have no control over other than allocating to organizations that are recognizable as doing journalism. And beyond that, the government wouldn't get to say one way or another um, what exactly they're doing on the level of content, which is actually pretty similar to the PPP loans right now, where the government is uh, dispersing those funds. But as far as I understand it, they have no ability to control what the organizations do once they receive the funds, other than what they understand the organization exists to do. So it would be very much that logic. Um, the problem is that there's a lot of uh, pushback against that in the US, particularly in a lot of Europe, there's a, a longstanding embrace of this. Um, but in the US, it's considered to be, you know, just a little too close to handing over the reins to government officials, which I think is something that really needs to change because the alternative is that we're going to get more and more of those local news deserts. Right. And what, um, you brought up some really important points about about subscription models, et cetera. And one additional point is the corporate journalism model is vulnerable to, as we've seen, hedge fund exploitation. Uh, instead of actually purchasing a news outlet to continue a... Um, a tradition of doing good journalism to purchase a news outlet because it's got assets that you could then sell off. That's not helping. And, and a corporate journalism model is susceptible to that as we've seen. And although no model is perfect and maybe we need a combination, I am in a hundred percent agreement. Things like journalism and I would also say healthcare and education, of course, are not market-based Things. It is very much a question of what are our priorities going to be. Um, the other element that makes all this harder is that we are in what's called late capitalism. And that means that people experience more and more precarity. So the model of I get one job, maybe I went to college, I get one job, I stay in it until I retire is no longer what people in the workforce experience. In addition to that, they they experience higher costs of living in most major cities, um, which really you know, creates a bind. I've read recently that there are some surveys of journalists that indicate that they're making less than 33K a year. Some of them have them at 29K. And this is when we remove people who are you know, the, the blockbuster kind of TV anchor level, um, but that it can be really, really low for folks, particularly in their first zero to five years of experience. Um, but just because you're in zero to five years of experience doesn't mean that your rent is magically lower. And I think that those conditions of precarity are also things that play into this additional problem, which is that understandably people coming out of journalism programs or just out of college in general um, need to find job security as much as they can. 
uh, and that leads in part to this very sad story of how there was a few years ago that several people who won Pulitzer Prizes for journalism had since left the profession to be in PR and advertising. And there's always been a pipeline there, but I think that when you see some of the best folks as deemed by the Pulitzer Prize Board, you know, not being able to stay, um, that's another indication that hybrid models may also not be enough, that we really need to push on this idea of public funding if this public good is going to survive. The alternative people used to float is that, well, maybe we don't need it if we have citizen journalists, if we have social media where everybody can be a journalist. And I think we all saw how that has not really worked out um, as people might have hoped. Right, so true. If this is something that we truly believe in, if we want to guard our democracy and and inform, be informed, then it is something we have to start to really talk about in, in this kind of way. Thank you to Dr. Anita Varma, Assistant Director of Journalism and Media Ethics at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. Today, we explored ethical media coverage, how to cover marginalized communities, the challenge of U.S. media funding models, and how to develop a comprehensive source list and cover stories contextually. Next week, we'll explore how word choice and passive voice can infuse bias into coverage, the pros and cons of humanizing, and the importance of expanding our perspectives and seeking to answer why. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on your favorite podcast channel. We're also on Twitter at News in Context SF, and you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening. <laughs>